Blog Talk Radio. Hunger Games movie. Three tries. And that's not the movie's fault as such, though I 
didn't particularly find the movie entertaining. Um, I was tired. <laughs> I, I just kept nodding off like an old man uh, every time I sat down to watch this. Part of it, the small part was some, was disinterest, but the rest of it was just sheer exhaustion. And I thought I went back far enough and caught the whole thing and was able to piece it all together from what I was seeing. And it turns out I actually missed a, a chunk of the movie. That's on me, and so I'm not going to comment on that on the chunks that I missed. But at the time, it forced me to ask a question on Facebook. I don't understand the relationship between PETA and Katniss. It seems to have come out of the clear blue sky. Some people saw that question and, and just gave me an answer and said, well, here's where it is in the movie, and you, I don't know how you missed it, but it's there. And, oh, okay, I, I take that. I'll take that one on the chin, my goof. Other people chose to react this way, and this is what I want to talk about. Um, read the books was the answer I got, or it's in the books. Well, it's also in the, in the movie, which is the question I was really asking, but this idea of when you watch a movie that is based on a novel, that somehow the novel should be supplemental material to the movie, to me is an asinine idea. When you watch a movie, the movie should exist unto itself. This is my opinion. Sean agrees, I believe. Uh, and, he'll, and I'm going to give him a chance to weigh in on this in just a moment. But the movie should exist in and of itself without the need of supplemental material. If you're adapting a comic book, say, Demon in a Bottle from the Iron Man series, I shouldn't have to go and read Demon in a Bottle to understand the movie you're trying to do even when you're doing it kind of badly, as they did in Iron Man 2. Um, if you want something, uh, I'll go back to Lord of the Rings for a moment. I shouldn't have to read Lord of the Rings to understand what's happening on screen. The director and the screenwriters should give me a piece of cinema that I can follow, that has acted well, that looks nice, and should not have me going back to, re to rely on the books to follow the plot. So when I ask a question like, why do Katniss and Peeta seem to have this relationship that came out of nowhere, I shouldn't have to go to the book to, to see how their relationship developed. It needed to be portrayed, and to my recollection it was, it needed to be portrayed on screen. Last night, Robert Winfrey and I reviewed, I'm going to let Sean in just a moment, but last night, uh, Robert Winfrey and I reviewed the Huntsman Winter's War, and we talked at length about how there were certain choices made by Jessica Chastain's character, who I kept calling uh, Merida, because I'm just being cheeky, from uh, the Brave cartoon. Um, there were just certain character choices and, and uh, plot choices that were being made that just seemed unearned by the relationship that was portrayed on screen. That's not the actor's fault. That's the fault of the screenwriting and the fault of the direction. And it's the same thing here. If the director and the screenwriters don't do a good job of portraying their intent on screen, then what you have is a shit movie. And that is all I care about. I don't care about extraneous details. If, and if you think I'm like far in left field in this and you hear Sean's part and you think he's you know, somewhere on planet Neptune, the Red Letter Media guy said the same thing. Okay, they were talking about uh, Star Wars, I think it was, and they and they're like, well, it's in the books, uh, with reference to the Phantom Menace. And Mike Staklasa, uh, who is also Mr. Plinkett, basically said, I don't give a shit. 
I don't give a shit if it's in a comic book. I don't give a shit if it's in the novelization of the movie. I don't give a shit if it's in another novel. If it's not on screen, it doesn't count, and I'm not using it to judge the movie. Sean? Ladies and gentlemen, there are certain aspects of discussing these movies that highlight problems with discussing a lot of media online, well, predominantly online, but sometimes in person as well. And this is a great opportunity to highlight some of them. Allow me to begin, to begin by putting somehow an even finer point on what Mark just said. I want you all to turn down any background noise. Whatever you're listening to, to this podcast on, thank you, by the way, first for downloading it. But now, I want you to put in your superb tweaked audio earbuds with the outstanding noise cancellation, the enjoy the crystal clear quality of the Bose over-the-ear stereo headphones, and listen very carefully to what I'm about to say to you. You're in my world now, Grandma. Books ain't shit. Quite frankly, if to understand your TV show, book, your TV show, your movie, your comic, your video game, or even your other book that is adapted from some other material, I have to go and first absorb something else to have even a cogent idea of what's going on, then one of two things has occurred. Either A, you are a spectacular failure as an adaptive writer, or you've chosen the wrong material to attempt to adapt. That's simply the way it is. This trend of always having to say, well, if you read this, or if you play this, or if you watch that, or if you derp this dippy-doo, or you dingle-dangle this dongle-dingle, quite frankly, it fills me with at least a mild loathing for a combination of Star Wars Expanded Universe and that brief spell where they tried to expand on the lore of the Matrix via the Animatrix and the Enter the Matrix video games, because they're the two biggest examples I can think of of this kind of, this kind of phenomenon where the idea comes up that to fully understand what's, go, what's going on, you have to look way outside the movie. No, supplemental material is one thing something that deepens an understanding of something or perhaps further fleshes out characters or events in fascinating ways. I mean, that's one thing. That's, in, that's enjoyable. It's a very noble pursuit. It's something that I can really get behind. On the other hand, it shouldn't be something that I have to absorb to have any idea what's going on. That being said, quite frankly, if Anybody listening to this replies to us, both either to what we're going to talk about in terms of the Hunger Games or what I'm about to espouse in terms of the Hunger Games and another certain work that was adapted from a rather popular book. Quite frankly, I'm not going to be nice. I'm going to remind you of what I just spent the last several minutes outlining. Your books don't matter. Go enjoy them for what they are but they have no power here. That being said, this is a good time, as long as we're going to be talking about the Hunger Games, to begin with a discussion of a term that I often see both the books and the movies slapped with, one which I shall aim to never use again. Overrated. As in, the way you've probably heard it used is, 
Uh, the Hunger Games is so overrated. It's it's nothing but baby's first battle royale. Because, of course, marketing to a young audience indicates inherent inferiority. Don't you all know that? Overrated. It literally translates to, you rate it too highly. You like this too much. Now, to any of you who have ever used this term or who plan to use it, I can think of at least two podcasting colleagues of mine and Mark's who would use it quite often without explanation and in the most decidedly trollish manner. I would ask this. Based on whose scale exactly, fuckface? To anyone who would deem something overrated, who in the sweet buttered fuck anointed you the benchmark for anyone's taste? I'll give you an example of this. Once upon a time, many moons ago, I deigned to go forth and finally immerse myself in the Bioshock franchise, which, uh, of course, my gamer friends out there will recognize as the the trilogy of games that are meant to be spiritual successors to the beloved and rightfully acclaimed System Shock franchise. Uh, This was at the time that Bioshock Infinite the much the much loved and lauded finale had just come out recently. And I happened to have one friend of mine, just particularly contrarian, you know, the type always spent more type talking about everything that he didn't like as opposed, opposed to the games he did enjoy, who would constantly go on, go on and on both about how overrated Bioshock Infinite is but also how the opinions of anybody who said otherwise were, and I'm quoting him exactly here, objectively wrong. (laughs) Yes, he was stating, in fact, that an opinion was incorrect. A preference was wrong. But also that he mostly hated it because parts of it, he believed, bore far too striking a resemblance to... Oh, fucking hell. And I, I, I'm going to get this wrong. I know I know I'm going to get wrong which game he compared to. I know it was one of the Chrono games. But I forget which one. I forget whether, whether it was Chrono Trigger or Chrono Cross. But point being, when overrated is applied to the, hung, to the Hunger Games, to put it even more narrowly, it tends to mean I'm going to judge your preferences like a bitter hipster twat because you enjoy something that I don't. Or to sharpen the point even finer, because you like something that dared flatter the thing, the thing I like by striving to imitate it. It's a very old saying, folks. Good artists copy, great artists steal. Now, depending, if you've read any kind of internet commentary about the Hunger Games, you chances are heard scads of comparisons saying, it steals too much from Battle Royale. Oh, it's just like Battle Royale. Oh, it's just a copycat of Battle Battle Royale. Meh, 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 meh. Okay, once again, got to say this one, one more time. Books don't fucking matter. Suzanne Collins in interviews for the Hunger Games, as in the books, said that her inspiration for the themes in the story came from watching combinations of large binges of coverage of the war in Iraq and also a lot of reality television. 
both of which were things that at one point you could find on just about every other channel, just about every other hour of the day. And I'll be the first to concede, it's very plain from watching, especially the first two Hunger Games movies, that the execute that yes, the execution of both stories is based, is rooted largely in Battle Royale, which prior to becoming a much controversial and widely popular movie in, movie in Japan, was first a widely beloved novel. Now, to all of you who love to play this, oh, it's just like this or it's just like that card, I'm going to rattle a few titles of movies and years off for you. Let's see. First, we have 1994's Surviving the Game, which happens to be one of my favorite movies. Uh, prior to that, you had 1993's Hard Target, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Before, over a decade earlier, you had Turkey Shoot in 1982, which was remade in Australia in 2014. 1961, you had Bloodlust. In 1956, you had Run for the Sun. In 1945, you had A Game of Death. Not to be confused with the Bruce Lee movie, a very similar title. Can what I add one? Have in common? Can I add one? The Running Man. Ah, The Running Man. Yes, that's a very good one. Thank you. I'm not sure how I missed that. Uh, you know, 50 points to Gryffindor for nailing that one. <laughs> now, what do all these... Ha- what do all these have in common, you may ask, my little crotch dumplings? And by crotch dumplings, I'm referring to you shits that constantly bring up this Hunger Games Battle Royale matter. Well, quite frankly, they're all takes on the same 1924 Richard Connell short story, The Most Dangerous Game, which itself was made into a 1932 film by RKO. They are all films based on the same story themed after man hunting man with slight variations either based either based on the country in which they were filmed or who exactly was putting their own spin on that theme. Hey, guess what? Here, allow me to uh, slap you upside the head with the big meaty cock of some more trivia. Uh, Dragon Ball Z? Yeah everybody's favorite anime, the one everybody grew up with, the one, the sacred cow everybody everybody loves. Yeah, guess what? That and scores of other anime are adaptations of Journey into the West, a 16th century Chinese epic. And incidentally, when DBZ first arrived states, stateside, guess what? Goku became an adaptation of an adaptation because his character was intentionally shifted to be more reminiscent of Superman to better connect with American audiences. In fact, Journey into the West itself precedes such contemporary pop culture institutions as Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and just about every damn superhero origin saga ever as a quintessential permutation of Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is his archetypal blueprint for character arcs that echo down from character to character, century to century, across mo- culture to culture, across millennia, including, to a certain extent, the Hunger Games. Why the hell do you people think Willow always feels so familiar when you watch it? It's at least half Star Wars with a midget Val Kilmer and Kevin Pollock in a loincloth. <laughs> hey, but let's go even further down the microscope, shall we? 
Deadpool? Yay, everybody loves Deadpool. Hooray. Yeah, he was basically created as a mockery of Deathstroke. Uh, Captain Marvel was a thinly veiled attempt to recreate Superman. Uh, Namor has more than a little bit in common with Aquaman. And of course, if you were to look at both Marvel and DC, you would find multiple Anglo-centric heroes that have so lovingly swathed themselves in the Union Jack. All of them imitations that have established their own followings and meant to target their own audiences, not necessarily strictly to piggyback off of somebody else's work. And hey, as long as we're being honest, typically... I hate to make personal with certain people over what they actually like, but um, let's just uh, be honest about the movie that you all get so anally chased about the Hunger Games ripping off. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite frankly, the throbbing hard-on you all have for Battle Royale escapes me. It's not a bad movie. I wouldn't go nearly that far. It's its own thing, as Japan has a very unique aesthetic and a very unique approach to uh, storytelling, shall we say. But, you know, I've rewatched it twice now in preparation for this podcast. Recently, as in within about the last week, which brings my grand total of watches of it to about three. And just like the first time I watched it, I had the same problem that kept me from being nearly as enamored with it as so many of you Japanophile hipsters do. Quite frankly, it's hard to really develop an attachment to any one character because everything ping-pongs around from one to the next. I mean, it's... It's basically it's basically a slasher movie. That's about what it amounts to. I mean, you get some moments where they attempt to establish a little bit of backstory, either through, in a couple cases, some somewhat ham-fisted exposition dumps, or in others via flashbacks. But really, I felt no reason to give a shit about what happened to any of these people. Honestly, uh, we're, you get really no window into the world that spawned the Battle Royale. The one in which, just to fill everybody in briefly, as a means of nipping in the bud what has become mass truancy and juvenile delinquency, Japan has instituted a game in which it takes a whole class full of teenagers dumps them onto an island together, gives each of them a care package with one randomly selected weapon of varying quality, depending on the bag, and uh, we even throw in a few ringers. They're all fitted with a bunch of radio collars that can be remotely detonated anytime somebody isn't behaving within the very few rules of the game, anytime somebody tries to escape the game without killing any anyone or being killed, or anybody who is still left standing at the end of the three-day time limit. That's basically the crux of it. 
the other problem is, is you have both, well, shall we say predators and prey, speaking, of course, both of the people running the game and the students themselves, who appear to be mutually mildly retarded watching a battle of idiots versus idiots. <laughs> um, it's gory as all fuck, as you would expect from what from well, quite a few Japanese movies and anime. But really, that's about it. Most of the preferences that I hear that I hear favoring battle royale tend to just say, "Oh, it's more badass. It's more bloody. It's more violent. It's more mature." Yeah, but it's also more fucking boring. I didn't give a shit about anybody. Probably also for a different Not audience. Not Well, yeah. yeah. Well, and thank you for bringing that up. There's that too. Being a young adult book series or movie is not bad. It isn't an excuse for it to be stupid necessarily. But it's a good reason to change up your focus. Suzanne Collins was very clearly not writing for the same crowd. Battle Royale, I think, is much more limited in its maturity, both the book and the novel. On the other hand, yes, The Hunger Games is much more accessible. And frankly, I find nothing wrong with that. I don't think that Suzanne Collins or the maker of the movies owe anybody an apology for that. If you were to make The Hunger Games as violent as Battle Royale was and as unflinching, and I remind you, this is a movie that was staunchly banned in Japan for a while over its content, quite frankly, Lionsgate would have hemorrhaged money out the door on this. They Now, a studio can get away with it with Deadpool because it's a highly recognizable property and there were certain expectations for it to be handled in a certain way. Otherwise, you weren't going to get as many people coming to it. And also, a very great deal was owed to the, to the very bare, no-punches-pulled marketing that even said, don't bring your kids to see this movie. It's a, yes, it's a Marvel movie doesn't mean it's a superhero movie. This is not going to be Captain America. This is not going to be Iron Man or Thor or Ant-Man. This one's for the grown folks. The Hunger Games does what it does effectively on a number of fronts. It is a visually impressive movie. For the most part, I thought the performances did the characters a great deal a great deal of justice, judging simply from what I think they were going for. I personally have not read the books either. I've only read up a little bit on the history of, on the history of them, on Suzanne Collins' interviews, and her process of shaping the trilogy. However, just to bring all this back, all this back around, quite frankly... It's none of your business 
what somebody else likes. You get me? There's no point in deriding it. It, it goes back to that to that one comment that I read that one time, baby's first battle royale. So, what, it was marketed to a younger audience, so that makes it automatically inferior? How? And while we're at it, this whole notion of, well, it resembles this, so it must be bad. It's not 100% original, so it's a complete and utter failure. Oh, come the fuck off it and shut the ever-loving fuck up. Oh, it's not entirely original. Oh, it's like something else that people liked. Perish the thought. Something was so good that it established a formula that others set out to follow and tweak to create something on their own. How in the hell is that unusual? Do any of you realize how long it's been since there was anything completely original under the sun in any artistic medium? Something comes along every so often that breaks new ground. But for the most part, yes, everything is an imitation of something else. I've heard this in gaming all the time. Um, Bat- the Batman Arkham games came out and really refined the free-flow combat system. And all of a sudden, you saw game after game after game that was instituting their own version of that to varying degrees of effect. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But there was no point in criticizing anything, especially because it acknowledged, well, this is a superior way to do, way to do melee combat, so we're going to structure our game this way. There's no point in, it what's, point in it whatsoever. That alone is a lazy way to say that you fu- to say that you don't have a preference for something just because it's like something else. Because chances are everything that you love is like something else. And yeah, I happily burst your bubble that about 75 or so years before your precious battle royale came out, Somebody else had already written a short story that had established decades of movies about humans hunting humans for varying reasons, in varying settings, to varying results. Some have been good, some have been awful. Quite frankly, if I'm to be really honest, and by all means, I really hope some of you hear this and reply angrily to me, I am pretty sure that a number of you just like to name drop Battle Royale knowing full well that it's really a fairly average movie, maybe above average. Oh, yeah, I think I'll say it's about above average. Just because you think it makes you sound 200,000.5 times cooler that you like something Japanese. Let me let you in on something. It makes you look like a twat. (laughs) Every country produces shit. Something being American from a major studio doesn't make it bad any more than something being from Japan instantly makes it good. There's a shit ton of awful anime out there. 
trying to defend it, we can tell how hard you're trying. Just let people like what they like. You leave us alone to like the Hunger Games and we'll turn a blind eye to how positively masturbatory you get over this very above average gore fest. Okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. Very well said, uh, Sean. Let's go ahead and move on to the films themselves now that we've firmly established all of that. Um, I'm going to do my best to sum up the plot here. Um, I'm going to probably leave out a few things because I want to get into the, some of the analysis of this, what I can analyze the first one. But basically, we have a dystopian future. Um, and I'll save my criticism of, of that for when I'm done here. We have a dystopian future, and all we're told about this dystopian future is that there was once a rebellion, the district's lost, and as punishment uh, by the capital, there's a yearly Hunger Games that involves a boy and a girl uh, from each district, 12 to 18 years old. Um, Jennifer Lawrence, who plays Katniss Everdeen, substitutes herself for her sister, who was initially chosen, and the male uh, is a guy named Peta Mellark. They're taken to the Capitol by Woody Harrelson, who is their mentor, who uh, is channeling um, <laughs> the great drunks in the history of cinema for this movie. Um, and um, they're also escorted by uh, a character played by Elizabeth Banks, Effie Trinket, who does the kabuki-style makeup. Um, <laughs> the they get to the Capitol. They're trained for the games. There's, uh, a, from what I can recall, and this is, again, where my memory's a bit hazy because I, I kept fading in and out, but um, Peta and Katniss develop some sort of a relationship. They're training for the games. There's, uh, they somewhat establish what the games, what the greater meaning of the games is for the, for the districts and, you know, keeping peace uh, in the world. Et cetera, et cetera. This is also where we get to meet the careers who are people who have been trained from birth, essentially, to kill, 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 just in case they are ever chosen for said Hunger Games. Um, they are eventually, we, we finally get to the good part of the movie, which is they're in the Hunger Games now, and uh, PETA goes and joins, uh, allies himself with the careers, and Katniss grabs a bow and arrow and goes up a tree. Um, of trying to avoid the melee altogether. A bunch of kids get killed, and the careers go a hunt, uh, go on the hunt. Uh, she, Katniss tries to avoid a lot of the fighting by staying in the trees. The careers finally catch up with her. Peter tells them, she got to come out of the tree at some point. Let's just wait for it. Meanwhile, while in the tree, Katniss befriends another little girl uh, by the name of Rue, Rue gives her an ingenious idea, drop a, uh, drop a beehive, or as they call them in the movie, trackajackas, uh, on their head and see how they like it. She does, but she ends up getting stung, um, and she gets some ill hallucinogens for her troubles. Rue takes care of her. They form a friendship. Rue is then instantly killed. <laughs> and uh, Katniss then swears vengeance. Uh, shortly after that, 
um, there's an announcement made that uh, well, a couple of things a couple of things happen. One, you have the guy running the games um, who forces uh, Jennifer Lawrence to sort of get back into the swing of things. Um, you know, creates a forest fire so she can't stay away from the from the main violence going on, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of manipulation here so to keep people fighting so they can't just you know stay and hide the whole time and make for a boring television show. Get it? So um, so you have that you have uh, you have this announcement that says hey two people can two people from the same district can win this thing. Uh, that's when she goes looking for Peta. Peta, um, who was with the careers, then isn't, uh, ends up allying back with her. Their relationship continues to blossom, I guess. Um, they make it look good for the, for the cameras, apparently, because then sponsors start sending them medicine and other supplies. And uh, we then build to our finale, where... Uh, the games master releases uh, the dogs from the Angly Hulk movie, and uh, <laughs> they they kill some of the, they kill some of the careers. Another one bites the dust that's got uh, Peta in a chokehold, and that's it. They're the two left standing. And then they make another announcement that says uh, only one of you can win. Cup Kitty, fight. And Katniss says, "I will not be told what to do. You can't you can't fire me. I quit." So she convinces herself and Peta to eat the poison berries, at which point they go, oh, shit, we've, we, we've pushed them too far, see? And then they change their minds again, and like <laughs> WWE-style booking, that <laughs> everything that just happened no longer matters, and they say both of them win. Um, the, uh, at the end of all of this, uh, Woody Harrelson's character, the mentor... <laughs> Mr. Uh, Hamish says, hey, you done pissed off the president who, who was played by Donald Sutherland. Um, lots of luck there in the future. And uh, Katniss finally tells Peta to just forget about what, even though he's, I guess, wildly in love with her. Katniss tells him, stay in your nose, forget about what happened, let's just move on with our lives. Because she, and rightly so, is really in love with her buddy from back in the district, Gail Hawthorne, played by the ever-so-handsome Liam Hemsworth. Not nearly as handsome as Chris Hemsworth, but handsome enough. They are some handsome people. So let, let me say a couple of things. What I was able to get from this movie, the parts that I was awake for, um, my first complaint about the movie, and this is just a personal thing, is I, I didn't like being dropped into this world where all I'm told is, why there's a Hunger Games, which I don't care about yet, um, and, but not how we got to, not how we got to this place uh, in the future. You know, a lot of these, you know, Terminator, a lot of these movies that that set up dystopian futures give you some idea, and and some don't. Robert Winfrey and I had this discussion offline, um, where you know some some just throw you into the future and tough shit figure it out, but. Ones like Mad Max, Terminator, give you an idea of how we got to said dystopian future. And I don't necessarily need a flashback or anything, but some words on the screen would have been nice. Um, and, and that goes to a bigger complaint that I have about the Hunger Games movie. And that is, the focus of the movie is too narrow. It is, this is the Katniss Everdeen story. 
of how she goes from, uh, you know, district gal to hero of the rebellion. And I understand that, but it's not an interesting story because I don't feel like she's an interesting character. Um, at least what I was able to, to, to glean from the movie, maybe she shows some sort of a personality in the city scenes, but you know, the beginning of the movie, the train and the hunger Games, which are the parts of the movie that I remember the most, I didn't see much of a personality there. I saw somebody who was trying to survive and was not happy about what she was doing, but that didn't make for a very interesting character. Um, PETA, who I do not like as a character, is at least more interesting. I thought he had a couple of different levels going on. All, but because, I, because again, because we're focusing on a character whom I do not like and I do not find interesting, I didn't find the scope of the movie to be interesting because it focuses too narrowly on Katniss. When we get to Catching Fire in a few minutes, um, I love that movie. I thought it was great. Because it opened up the world, and I could, fo- and the movie focuses on the wider issues going on in the world that Katniss is a part of and is starting to influence. But we'll we'll get there shortly. But that that's the difference. So you understand where I'm coming from with the Hunger Games um, versus Catching Fire, is that because they chose to narrow the scope of the movie to to what's going on with her and how she feels and does things. And even in that, they don't do a great job of portraying her thoughts and emotions because from what I've been told in the books, there's a whole inner monologue going on that she has. And the, and this is what I mean by we're going to focus on craft. None of that is brought out in the movie. I'm basically watching Jennifer Lawrence mope and shoot arrows for two hours. Whoop-de-doo. I'm going to stop there and let Sean uh, comment, but, you know, give me your feelings on some of what I've said here and your thoughts on her performance and the scope of the movie. For the most part, I agree. I think it was actually paced pretty well in terms of there being a, there's an echo on your end. I hear um, okay. Now that's I that's radio. I, it'll go away when it goes away. Just sort of, you know, measure your speed so that the echo passes and you can keep going. Hopefully okay, block will fix it. Okay, I'll do my best. Um, I think it was actually paced pretty well in terms of how as, as we've discussed before, the, uh, there's that whole uh, I, there's that whole idea of you gotta get the kids to the mall. Right. Uh, it, it gradually shows you a little bit of catness in terms of her having to be a fairly resolute provider for her family in a piss-poor slum of a district. And the fact that she has to provide for them by way of, by way of her wits, um, by way of what have been her very sharpened survival skills. And then you get to see gradually just a little bit more reveal both when she steps when she steps up to volunteer in place of of uh, her of her sister at the reaping and then more so as she becomes immersed in the in the culture of the bigger city that she's all of a sudden that she's all of a sudden thrown into 
Uh, I will agree that without the inner monologue, uh, yeah, she does feel very flat. Uh, I, I will grant you that. It's it's something that either perhaps should have been portrayed by manufacturing dialogue, which is always a bit of a tightrope because on the one hand, yes, you express what's inner monologue in the books and you get it out there, but on the other hand, you're bound to just unleash unleash a shitstorm from the pants-on-head nanners screaming like howler monkeys, purists, who are going to say, she didn't actually say that in the book. That character didn't exist in the book. That didn't happen. The book was better. You're disrespecting it. Zero buys. Unsub. Zero out of ten. Would not watch again. You get the idea. You've heard it a million times over. Anytime something is changed for the necessity of simply being able to carry the source material over to the new medium. Happens again and again and again. So I understand why that choice was made. But also the fact that you have a plan for adapting a trilogy of books. So in a way, if, if you were to take this and compare it perhaps to a superhero movie, uh, this is sort of the origin story. Um, the, 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 first, the very first formative battles um, that, kind of, that kind of follow the call to adventure, um, if I'm to invoke uh, Campbell's hero with a thousand faces just a little bit. But I feel that Jennifer did as good a job as she could with what she was given. She wasn't really given a whole lot of dialogue to work with. She wasn't really given a great deal of interaction. Uh, She was just kind of supposed to be solitarily bewildered. But on the other hand, I would also agree that somehow – with even less dialogue and even fewer scenes to work with, PETA managed to be slightly more engaging. Yes. Excuse me. Um, I think in the sense they kind of want to sort of push that, uh, that kind of OTP bond between him and the audience, uh, whether they've read, whether they've read the books or not. But at the same time, they did the best they could with what they had. And what they got was a movie that managed to give you just a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a taste of just what the adversarial culture um, that Peter and Katniss were up against was all about in terms of, in terms of the capital. Uh, in terms of little little glimpses of President Snow and um, games maker Mick Curlybeard. I don't I don't remember his name. I just know that he's um, the, the 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 kid from American Beauty that blew his load every time he saw a plastic bag blowing in the wind. Um, <laughs> uh, Wes Bentley, that's his name. Also, he was. Also, he was uh, uh, Darkheart in Ghost Rider. Um, <laughs> speaking speaking of going om nom nom all over the scenery, um, but it's 
it's a good movie to watch for the spectacle, I think. Uh, Woody Harrelson delivers an unsurprisingly solid solid performance as a scruffy-looking drunk. No shock there. Uh, Donald Sutherland was a very was a very stately, very presidential-looking President Snow. Uh, Katniss was, or Jennifer Lawrence rather, was convincing with the phys- with the physicality. Uh, Peta was endearing in a very de- a very dependable, loyal. Uh, Kind of puppy dog sort of way, sort of way. If I'm to if I'm to be honest about about it, um, and in the end, it was okay for what it was, and it gave them a lot more that they that they were able to work with and expand upon as needed with Catching Fire, in which the character development got deeper. Uh, we got to look even deeper into the into the capital and under and understand those characters much more. Uh, we came to understand more of really what's at stake and get to see the two sides drawing closer and closer to their to their boiling point by the two sides. I obviously mean of course uh, Katniss and President Snow. And we got even more wonderful performances performances from even more outstanding performers who were added to the cast uh, to play the pre to play the previous tributes. Uh, one last thing, one last complimentary thing that I will say about the first movie though, before we go is kudos to Elizabeth Banks. Uh, I, I really enjoy her as Effie Trinket because she has this gift for, yeah, she's supposed to be a little, to be hammy. Obviously it's part of who, it's part of her character, but she really kind of acts well with the makeup, um, and really kind of makes the whole garish appearance a part of the performance rather than necessarily just looking like she's kind of fighting it. It's uh, the way I look. I like to look at it is it's that difference between. Jim Carrey in The Grinch or Robert England as Freddy Krueger and Mike Myers in The Cat in the Hat. Um, I don't talk a little bit about the direction here real quick and then when we're going to wrap up uh, wrap, up, wrap up our discussion of The Hunger Games and move on to Catching Fire because I don't have a whole lot more to say about The Hunger Games. Um, one of the things I didn't like about it was the di- choice of direction um, this is uh, Gary Ross, whose claim to fame in terms of direction are Pleasantville and Seabiscuit prior to The Hunger Games. And you would look at Pleasantville and Seabiscuit, which are well-directed movies, and go, oh, okay, you should be able to handle this. Uh, I don't know what the thought Not process was. Uh, okay, see, I, I thought the – okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know what the thought process was here. Because um, I mean I haven't seen Seabiscuit, but I mean it's not Pleasantville, so, you know, and I thought that uh, Pleasantville was well directed. They chose to do sort of a documentary style, like shaky cam at times, and I just everything just in the movie just feels flat. Um, 
when you're talking about sort of sci-fi, dystopian future, social commentary, an important element to get across to your, uh, your audience should be the visuals. Even in, in a world where everything is destroyed, there should be some interesting visuals. And not only does the camera not stay still long enough for me to, to for the viewer to focus on anything, uh, I, every, the, the shots are flat and the scenes for the most part are just kind of meh. Um, you know, like I can forgive Star Wars for, you know, a third of it being in the Death Star, which is black on black on gray on black. Um, because everything, because everything is moving fast and you've got action happening and, uh, George Lucas actually did a very good job of keeping the goddamn camera still and letting the, you know, the actors and the action take place, you know, in a frame that the viewer can actually focus on and watch. Whereas with the Hunger Games, you're either, it's, you know, it's either shit, you know, someone's having a seizure while holding the camera, or it's a close-up of Jennifer Lawrence's face as she looks tired in a tree. And I'm like, ugh, I, I think was, that, that was part of the issue, is like this isn't visually capturing my interest. Catching Fire looks amazing. Um, I, I, it's the same director for the next three movies, and from a visual standpoint, if um, the Mockingjays are as good as Catching Fire, I'm going to love them visually. I don't even care how nonsense the plots might be. Uh, it looked amazing. This shit, you know, if I, if I was at all interested in the character, I would have been way put off by the filming and direction style. But you had an issue even with, with Seabiscuit or Pleasant Belt? Um, you know, if I'm looking at the kind of source material that The Hunger Games is and what type of story it is, no, to be honest with you, Pleasantville, while a great movie, would not necessarily be something I would look at and and be filled with a sense of, okay, yeah, this was great, so that surely means that it's going to translate translate well over to this story. Um, I mean, it's it's a very it's a fairly low key, kind of lighthearted Capra esque suburban dramedy. Um, not sure. Not sure that would be the one I would go with um, for basically a wilderness survival story for the most part. Right. Um, that no, that, that that wouldn't be my first. I don't. I don't know really who would be. So so go ahead. I mean, who 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 would you have rather? I mean, just with, with no limitations. Suppose that you had a window when nearly every major director in Hollywood is is completely free and clear. Who would you pick to direct it? I don't know. Is Michael Camino still around doing stuff? What, who who now? Michael Camino. Maybe it's Camino. Michael, it's spelled with a C. Michael C-I-M-I-N. He directed The Deer Hunter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well... I was, yeah, I was gonna say, well, let, let's keep it to present day. But again, yeah, like like you just pointed out, <laughs> you told me no to... limit. God damn it! <laughs> yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know either. Um, um, I don't know. I, I maybe Spielberg. Um, um, Spielberg. Spielberg would be good. Um, yeah, I, I think somebody who can handle science fiction, because in a way, that's what this is. 
you know, not the, the, the tremendous amount of science here, so maybe that, that's not the right uh, use of phrase here, but um, somebody who can handle fantasy. So, okay, hang on. Let me let me, let me look at something real quick because I think I got somebody in mind here that would probably be good. Well, you're doing um, that. I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw a couple at you that just immediately came to mind when I said the word fantasy. So Spielberg okay. was one. Okay. Peter Jackson's another one. Um, I think yeah, it would have been good. Okay. Uh, I, I probably would leave off J.J. Abrams. Um, I would also... I mean, uh, yeah, if, if you don't like Shaky Cam, you definitely don't want J.J. Uh, no, I don't. Let's, let's get J.J. out of there. Uh, what's his face, though? Did Age of Ultron from Marvel... Um, um, oh, um, uh, John Whedon. Um, see, I think um, I thought of uh, David Yates, uh, who directed the uh, the film adaptation of Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. Okay, that would have been a good one. You know, somebody who has an eye for fantasy and can bring you to the world that they're trying to show you. Because I didn't. Because here's the thing: I didn't feel like I was in another world. I didn't feel like I was in the future. I felt like I was in Detroit, and then I mm. felt like I was, and then I felt like I was in, you know, the uh, forests of the North Pacific, uh, Northwest so you, Pacific here in the United States. Really, just really, just just to be honest, since I don't remember off the top of my head who directed all of them, I think you could take anybody who directed in the Harry Potter series from the third movie onward, and they would probably be a good fit for the Hunger Games. So here's where I'm going to say one positive thing about this movie. Um, I think you're correct. Everything, the, the, the performances are fine. I may not find the character of Katniss to be interesting, but Jennifer Lawrence did her damnedest with that performance, and I don't fault Jennifer Lawrence. The rest of the cast shines. Um, there are some interesting characters, certainly more interesting than Katniss. Unfortunately, you don't spend enough time with them. Uh, the guy who plays Pete is good. Uh, Woody Harrelson's good. Um, What's her face that plays Effie? Uh, actually, I really Banks. enjoyed her character, Elizabeth Banks. Stanley Tucci is great. <laughs> I liked his role. Oh in the movie. yes, 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 so yes. It's a collection of great performances and kind of a crap movie. Um, but here's where I'm going to give it some credit, and I have to if I'm going to be intellectually uh, honest with myself and consistent with my criticisms. Uh, in two cases. One being The Force Awakens, and two being um, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Someone who doesn't know that there's going to be more movies could, take, could, could look at both of those and go, what the fuck did I just watch? Okay? And, be, yeah, and, and, yeah. and make a lot of the criticisms that I'm making about The Hunger Games, you know, focus is too narrow, or not necessarily with The Fellowship of the Ring, but eh, maybe so. There's, too, there's, there's a tremendous amount of focus on Frodo, and him running like Jake, you know, fleeing like Jacob from the uh, from the Shire with the ring, um, mm-hmm. and just his struggle with should he or should he not stay with the Fellowship. But the the point of all of this is, is you could make uh, people could make the same criticisms about those two movies that, that that I'm making about the first Hunger Games. But the reason why I've defended them and said, but you, but these are part ones of a of a of a full arc of a story. Right. And it would not be then fair for me to say, okay, well, I'm not going to give the same then credit to The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games is this introduction to a bigger world. That's the way they chose to do it. 
Um, it does get bigger. It does get better. You do see more of the world in the next movie, which made me very happy. So in that sense, it does, it does its job well. It was a fair introduction to the Hunger Games world. And I have to be honest, when it was over, while I wasn't really pleased with the movie itself, I was interested to see what the next chapter was going to be, which is its job. So there, it did that, you know, that, that's sort of my assessment of the Hunger Games. Um, eh, but at least it makes you interested in what happens next. Mm-hmm. Sean, you still with me? Yeah, I. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I, like I said, pretty, pretty much the same. I mean, it, it is what it is. It relies on pretty much everybody going into the movie, knowing that this is not a one hundred percent self-contained movie. It's the first. Right. It's the first movie in a series of. Well, I don't know if at the time they knew it was going to be four, but you know, at least three. Um. So you kind of had to count on everybody going, okay, that's the first, that's the first book. Um, okay. Not a great movie by, it, by itself, maybe, but can't wait to see what happens in the next one. So let's talk about the next one. Now, I've already said I, I really like this one. Um, part of the reason, as I said before, it opens up the world. You get to see more of the political... Uh, intrigue going on between the districts and the capital. Um, there are repercussions of things that happened in the first movie that play out here. Rue's death, for example, becomes an important part of, of inspiring the districts to rebel, that sort of thing. Um, you get more of the criticism of reality TV in this and how reality TV is used to manipulate the masses. Um, mm. You you get more uh, more elements to the on again off again will they or won't they relationship between Katniss and Peeta, uh, which was interesting, and then you get a you know you you get a fake out with the dearly departed um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character of Plutarch Heavensby. These fucking names, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know he. Philip Seymour Hoffman sort of channeling his character from the Mission Impossible movie that we talked about a, a year or two ago. Uh, sort of same thing here, only he turns out to be a good guy. Spoiler alert. Um, it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to do my best here to do the plot synopsis, but um, uh, the Hunger Games are now over. Katniss and Peter are your co-winners. They go back to District 12. President Snow goes to visit Katniss and basically says to her, uh, look, you know, what you did in the games have caused rebellions in the districts. Uh, so you're going to go on a media tour, a uh, victory tour, and you're going to convince, uh, you're going to convince the masses and him that her actions were out of genuine love for PETA, not defiance against the Capitol. Otherwise, he's going to kill everybody. Um, you know, all Katniss's loved ones will be killed. So basically, get out there, make nice for the camera, let everybody know that they're watching a wonderful love story here and not some bullshit that, uh, you know, that the, the district should tear down the Capitol. And she says, well, I don't want everyone to die, so sure. Um, they go on tour. Uh, you know, everyone's back on the bus again. 
They got uh, Elizabeth Banks. They got Woody Harrelson. They're all there. Um, and they're told that basically this isn't going, this is basically like working for Marvel. It never stops. It's always going, it's going to go on forever. They will always be on tour promoting. Um, so Conor McGregor can suck it. Okay. You promote forever. Uh, a little bit of MMA there for those following that story. Um, so if, if they figure if they have to do this nonsense, why not really go, you know, go Broadway with it? And Katniss suggests that a public engagement between herself and PETA um, would really sell it and bring it home for everyone. Uh, this, of course, infuriates Gail, uh, but there's nothing you know, to do because she says, like, look, it was either this or everyone dies. What do you want from me? Um, peacekeepers crack down on District 12, and Gail is publicly whipped after attacking the new head peacekeeper, Romulus Thread. Sounds like a porno. Um, Snow announces the upcoming 75th Hunger Games, the third quarter quell, will feature tributes selected from previous victors. So you have people who have previously won the Hunger Games. That, that'll be the pot that uh, they'll draw from, which, you know, Katniss is the only one that ever won as a girl, so she's back in it. Um, and it's going to be either Woody Harrelson or PETA. Woody, uh, I think Woody Harrelson actually gets chosen, but PETA steps in and replaces him. So there you go with that. Um, uh, so they go back to the Capitol, and you know, it's a lot more pop and circumstance, uh, more talking with Stanley Tucci. Uh, they meet the other folks. Uh, some of them want to ally with her. Some of them want to throw her off a fucking cliff. So there's that. Um, is there anything in the city that needs to be talked about? Uh, there's a bit where Lenny Kravitz, who is, uh, who is her like, dressmaker, um, does a thing where the wedding dress she wears uh, transforms into a representation of the Mockingjay, but which then he is beaten the shit out of. Like you do. Um, they try to put off the Hunger Games or get out of it by saying that Katniss is pregnant and that doesn't work very well at all. Um, so in the games, uh, yeah, you know, we have basically like two teams uh, set out and the, the whole thing is made even more deadly by, by different, uh, different deadly things that keep happening, kind of like in the Bible. So you have a poisonous fog, um, you have monkeys, Mandrills, as they're called. You have uh, mandrills that attack. Um, oh, gosh, there's something else. I think, like, you know, uh, tidal waves or something, some crazy thing happens. But they figure out that uh, every X amount of hours, a holy hell breaks. There's a new holy hell that breaks loose. Um, moving right along, they, they, they figure, they decide they're going to... Uh, I have to read the rest of this, because I honestly couldn't follow what was happening. Um, E.T. suggests using one of the hazards a tree that is struck by lightning every 12 hours and a coil of wire to electrocute the other remaining tributes. The group separates to prepare the trap at once. Uh, alone, Johanna suddenly hits Katniss over the head. Style, that's right. So, yeah, there's this whole bit that's going to happen with the train electrocuting people, but it's all, it's all a sham. And what the, what's really happening here is that Woody Harrelson and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman rescue her from the uh, from the games that she shatters the dome with an arrow, and uh, they tell her, "Hey, you're the Mockingjay." And uh, District 12 has been destroyed by the Capitol. Uh, 
uh, Rage Against the Machine plays, and and uh, Neo stops the machine with his hand in real life. That's how that's how it ends. Wait, I've confused movies again. Um, no, she. <laughs> the film ends with a close with a close up of Katniss's eyes as her expression changes from desperation and panic to one of steely resolve, because the Capitol destroyed District Twelve. So that's the movie. Um, and as much as I was making some jokes there, uh, like I said, I thought the uh, this one is such an improvement over the first movie by and large. Um, I liked the menace, the quiet menace of Donald Sutherland. And I think it's a great place to sort of start with this is the, the is he sees in Katniss uh, that she is a symbol of rebellion and she's inspiring people to rebel. And there, and, and so under threat of death to her family, they they're going to use her to manipulate people into not rebelling and it's not working out well. And so it's just, and so it just builds from there. And so there's, there's this combination of manipulation and punishment happening. Uh, and it's all about using media to control the masses uh, like sheep and prevent them from upending the, uh, the status quo. And I like that. And I thought that was done very well in this movie. Once again, all the performances were spot on. There isn't really a weak performance in this that I could see, and it looks great. Sean? You know, it, it's always nice when, when you can have um, kind of a, a despotic or, or, or dictator type of authority figure that can manage to be evil without being straight up mustache twirly. You, know, you you don't have to be necessarily Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. And, and Sutherland does that with such a calm, in total controlled dignity. Even as things are starting to spiral sort of out of his control uh, toward the end of the movie. I would go so far as to say that Philip Seymour Hoffman was without question a huge step up from Wes Bentley. Uh, God rest his soul. It's a shame that he didn't leave. He didn't live to see the reception that uh, the final two movies got. Um, but Jennifer Lawrence also set it up really well because you already had the groundwork for her backstory laid with the previous movie, and so as with everybody it gave her a lot of room to just really dive deeper into fleshing the character out and having something to work with in terms of defining how the events of the first movie have affected her and how they've reshaped her and how she's changed by being thrown headlong right back into the quarter well. Uh, the same certainly goes with PETA. There's obviously a lot of lingering issues there, not the least of which, be, of which being his somewhat unrequited love with Katniss. Um, there's the introduction of uh, Plutarch, Beattie. Um, oh, I forget. Uh, I forget the name of Jenna Malone's character, the one that the one that she Jenna. played. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Johanna, um, uh, who I just, I didn't even recognize her 
at first. At first, when I started, I was holy shit. You look nothing like you looked in Saved. Um, <laughs> uh, she did a fine job, really turning it not, turning it around, and all of a sudden playing uh, what's supposed to be um, a, a very edgy kind of even some even somewhat seductive character. Uh, surprising range there. Uh, we find we were finally rid of Lenny Kravitz. That's a good thing. Um, I, I'm always okay with a world that has a little less of the funky hippie in it. Um, uh, Woody Harrelson once more was he was a Woody Harrelson character. <laughs> and he played on he kudos on playing a mighty fine Woody Harrelson. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically playing every character you have played since you played Woody Boyd on Cheers. <laughs> Um, but the, the visuals were absolutely on par on par with the first one, even kind of tightened up and, he, and even better executed, I thought, in some places. Yeah, actually in the actual Hunger Games sequences, um, it moves pretty fast. They go from, I thought it was a good idea to actually add the, 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 uh, the deadly plagues and all of that because it kept things moving. The, the, one of the issues I had with the first one <laughs> Is, is you're spending too much time with her up a tree, you know, falling asleep and, or staring at something. And if you feel like the movie just comes to a dead halt at times, like my daughter trying to ride a bike, you know, she starts to pedal and then fucking stops for no apparent reason. But, but what, was even, what was even more interesting to me was you took, you took the experiences of the games and you used them to further flesh out these new characters. Mm-hmm. And and establish and establish relationships and give you reasons to care about them right. and to actually witness some shifts in dynamic as, as things went along. Um, I mean, I won't say it's one of my favorite movies of all time because I'm just I'm just not that in, as invested in the Hunger Games series as a lot of people are, but. I've watched three of them so far. I have yet to watch uh, Mockingjay Part 2. But of the three, this is hands down my favorite because it's like it acknowledges that the first one was what it was. It had its limits that were just going to be insurmountable, but it was a necessary slow start to a bigger story. In a way, the first movie reminded me a little bit of the first of the original trilogy of X-Men movies. Hey, by the time you got to X2, you realized that the first one was a fleshing out little bit of a getting-to-know-you introductory soiree with these characters. Uh, it maybe felt like a little bit of a letdown as you walked out of, out of the theater, but by the time X2 was over with, you realized that it was patiently waiting for the next level in something much, much bigger. Now, that was kind of the way that I felt about these two, is the first one was a way to get all the pieces on the board. Uh, My sense would be that if you were to set the Hunger Games up as a TV show or a made-for-Netflix series, that would be a very not-bad first season. 
uh, that would be a good place to end the first the first season of the show. Um, but as a movie, I can see how there's a lot more pressure for everything to really stand alone exceptionally as being great on its own and not necessarily trusting the audience to have the patience to say, oh, well, okay, um, that was just the first stanza in something in something bigger. It's a slow starter, but it gets better because you're asking an audience to pay money for each new chapter unlike just asking an audience to wait for the next the next season of a show and to just patiently go, okay, well, it's it's the first couple episodes or it's the first half of the first season or it was the first season. It was still finding its finding its feet. But now they got it and I'm really anxious to see what they do what they do the second time around. If you want people to keep paying, you really have to get things as right as possible each time. And everything has to be able to stand on its own on the big screen. Because this, of course, was also prior to a time when hack directors could go out and give a bunch of interviews in the face of a tepid response and say, no, no, wait, if you just watch my directed cut, my director's cut, the R-rated one, the one that tacks on an extra 30, 45 minutes to my two-and-a-half-hour movie, it makes all the plot holes make sense. Just please pay me again to watch my movie again. I promise it'll be better this time. Pinky swear. Sean, I wish someday that you run into Zack Snyder just so you could punch him right in the nuts and say, not funny. (laughs) You know, I hope that one day hell is Zack Snyder being forced to watch Sucker Punch on an infinite loop until finally he just says, my God, I see why you all hate it now. Make it stop. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. um, So, to end the, to end our show tonight and, and get into plugs and all of that, uh, much, C- Catching Fire is a much more superior film. Um, it uh, it ends great. It uh, it's visually more stimulating. Um, the characters continue to be spawned on, as I said before, and the world that they are telling you a story in becomes much more interesting. Uh, I wanted a little something I wanted to add on to what you were saying about Donald Sutherland. You definitely get the sense that he's threatened, you know, um, you know, he's a, not a sympathetic villain, but a vulnerable villain, which you, you don't see a lot of because somehow Hollywood is fucked up making, you know, making their villains. Um, I mean, he's not Maleficent or anything, you know, <laughs> from that movie. But, um, you know, you, 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 see, you can see in his performance that the tenuous grasp he has on power is slipping through his fingers, and that's guiding his decision-making. And he's doing it with, uh, with, with, a, with a calm, but a nervous calm. Um, so yeah, it's, it, that's what made, that's to me what, made, what makes this all interesting. Um, and I'm excited to see how the next two movies go. Um, it's, uh, one of the, <laughs> one of the interesting things about it is, um, something that Winfrey talks about all the time is, you know, did the, did the last book need to be, need, did we need to do a Twilight 
and cut the uh, the book in half, or you know, or a Harry Potter and cut the book in half, all that stuff. And I, I won't know until I see the movie. I know with um, I know people have argued that in the case of Harry Potter, um, it was necessary. And I know that with Twilight, in talking to my wife about it, um, we. it was also necessary because it was, there was a lot of stuff to cover and it's not, and it's not the mm-hmm. book's fault that the, that the movies just handled it poorly. Um, it needed to be cut in half. It just didn't need to be cut in half the way that it was. Uh, so I, I'll be curious having, if the Mockingjay uh, follows the same, you know, was this necessary or as Winfrey keeps insisting, screaming at, 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 at you know, into the wind, um, this was a horrible cash grab and an unnecessary splitting of a book. Well, so we having, having, having watched uh, Mockingjay Part 1 already, yes, Mark, I will go ahead and warn you, it is going to be a slog. Um, oh, it's... If you really, if you really liked how action-packed Catching Fire was and how the second half of it was every bit as thrilling as you hoped the quarter quell would be. Oh, oh, Mark, do I have bad news for you. Um, you're, well, let me put it another way. Um, what did you think of the Scion sequences in The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolution? This just in, folks. We're canceling next week's show in favor of. Um, oh, that hurts. <laughs> Remember how All long right. it took us to get through Rocky, folks? It's gonna be just like this. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's let, let's let's do this. Um, next week we will conclude our look at the Hunger Games by looking at uh, Mockingjay and the wholly unnecessary <laughs> Mockingjay Part Two, I guess. Uh, or it should have just been one movie. Um, the week after that, we're going to keep going. Long Road to Ruin is going to go a couple of weeks in a row here. Uh, just the way that we were going to, we were supposed to take a week break, but um, friends died, and that's the end of that. So uh, next week, May 5th, uh, we will be looking at Mockingjays 1 and 2. Um, May 12th, we will be looking at the original Bad News Bears trilogy because it's May, and we've decided that May is baseball month for some odd reason. The guy agreed to this. I thought it was a great idea, and then I couldn't figure out why I would come to that conclusion. Um, (laughs) And then uh, the week after that, May 19th, uh, we will be looking at another baseball trilogy, Long Road to Ruin Presents Major League. Uh, So those are some fun movies. Um, Then we will take the week of the 26th off, and we'll be back on my birthday, June 2nd, to look at the 1, 2, 3 X-Men movies. It's the uh, same week we'll be reviewing X-Men Apocalypse. So, you know, synergy. Um, but we're, in case you're wondering about that, we will not be looking at the Wolverine movies. And we will not be looking at the, the soft reboots, uh, X-Men First Class and X-Men Days of Future Past because that's a whole separate thing with a different cast other than Hugh Jackman. So we're just looking at X-Men X2 and X3, we're sorry. Um, and that's enough for now. Uh, as far as the other stuff in the, in the, in the pipeline, um, 
We just reviewed Robert Winfrey and I, as I said earlier, The Huntsman, Winter's War. The last Metal Hammer of Doom, we looked at Al Jorgensen's new project, Surgical Meth Machine. Uh, a good time was had by all making fun of it and Uncle and, and cranky Uncle Al. Uh, next week, no movie review, but we'll be reviewing Rob's on the Metal Hammer of Doom. We'll be reviewing Rob Zombies, Electric Warlock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's going to be on a special day, uh, Wednesday, May 4th. So when you would normally hear the movie review, you're instead going to get an edition of the Metal Hammer of Doom. Uh, the following week, uh, Cooper's pick, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom, May 10th, Vector Terminal Redux. We'll be reviewing Captain America Civil War and the aforementioned Bad News Bears. Um, the week after that, Metal Hammer of Doom again on Tuesday, uh, the new Hate Breed, the Concrete Confessional. Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing Money Monster and the aforementioned Major League. That's enough for now. That's what I got going on in the pipe. You can also hear me on the occasional Bunkhouse Stampede. Uh, we'll be recording one shortly, which will be available tomorrow on the Bunkhouse Stampede Gavin Napier channel here on Blog Talk Radio. Sean, what you got going on in your world? You know, everything that I've got in the pipeline is really still just a little bit too fresh for me to talk too much about it, so it's not going to be worth plugging. I will say thank you to everybody who downloads the podcast every single week. We love that you listen. Um, I hope you realize that with my comment at the start of the show, I was not addressing all of you. Um, I think it was very clear that I was addressing a very small subset of of very bitchy people. Uh, who have kind of deserved to be called out for a long time. But in the meantime, hey, if you disagree, find me on Facebook. Uh, Look up Sean Comer. Uh, I'm in the process of getting rid of a couple old Facebook accounts, so find me on the one that has me in the Iron Man armor in my profile pic. Um, Message me there with your thoughts. Use the hashtag LRTR so that I know that you're not some ridiculous creeper or somebody who's still trying to convince me to vote Republican. Spoiler, guys, it's not happening. No, sorry. No, Democrats, it's not happening for you either. Um, I'm always open to talk about movies, music, comics, video games, um, Phoenix Coyotes hockey, or Arizona Coyotes hockey, I guess there's soon to be the possibly the Phoenix Coyotes again, so that makes sense too. Uh, the, the the most wonderful thing in life, and that is Kansas City Royals baseball, uh, NXT, WWE, professional wrestling in general. Anything you want to chat to me about, feel free to message me. I will do my best to get back to get back to you. Um, so again, thank you to all my friends. Thank you to the makers of the Hunger Games for putting so much time and effort into a four-movie anthology for us to enjoy and bitch about in like kind. Um, thank you to the lovely Miss Stephanie, who is letting me podcast from her couch this evening. Um, she has listened to the show, but love you, sweetie. Um, uh, thank you to Luke and Tessie for being the two greatest cats in the world. And I'm babbling and just a little bit sleep deprived. So I'm just going to leave off there and there and say, have a good night, everybody. And never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. All right. This has been a Radivision broadcasting network production of the long road to ruin with Sean Comer and Mark Radledge. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back again. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. 
be well, be safe, and behave.